From the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science, welcome to Season 2 of Cookies, a podcast about technology, privacy, and security. I'm Aaron Nathans. On this podcast, we'll discuss how technology has transformed our lives, from the way we connect with each other, to the way we shop, work, and consume entertainment. And we'll discuss some of the hidden trade-offs we make as we take advantage of these new tools. Cookies, as you know, can be a tasty snack, but they can also be something that takes your data. On today's episode, we're honored to welcome Barton Gelman, Princeton class of 1982. Bart has won multiple Pulitzer Prizes, including for his groundbreaking work with the Washington Post in 2013 to reveal widespread surveillance by the National Security Agency. The stories showed that even though they weren't the targets, law-abiding American citizens could still find their private email, social media content, and online activities swept up by our national security apparatus. After the 9-11 attacks, the NSA was handed the ability to tap the records held by leading U.S. internet companies without a warrant based on probable cause. Gelman's source later famously unmasked himself as Edward Snowden, a former national security contractor who, accused of espionage and theft of government property, is now living in Russia. Both Gelman and Snowden share a strong appreciation for using private and secure digital communications. That helped them build trust and allowed Gelman and his collaborators to evade anyone who might have tried to interfere with their reporting. But privacy has long been a passion of Gelman's, and today we'll ask him for tips we can use to make our own lives more private, as well as talk about his book, Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Bart Gelman was a visiting fellow at Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy a few years back. Let's get started. Bart, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. So you noted in your book that your inclination toward privacy has been so strong that your former colleagues at the Post used to tease you that you may have worn a tinfoil sleeping cap to ward off radio beams. Now, I'm sure you don't, but can you remember the origin of your appreciation for privacy and and does it predate the digital revolution or is this only about technology? It coincided with the digital revolution uh, and my growing awareness of the digital exhaust that everyone leaves behind. Uh, and also my uh, clear awareness that where I stored my notes uh, mattered mm-hmm. a great deal. I mean, I, I took care with my uh, handwritten notebooks to keep them in my control. And I realized that the default setup in uh, the Washington Post newsroom put all my notes on a network drive uh, that administrators and uh, and supervisors had access to, which meant mm-hmm. that uh, potentially other snoops around the newsroom had access and potentially outside forces. So I started off thinking about stored communications and I began saving only local copies of my notes. And then I learned about encryption. So I began saving only encrypted copies of my notes. Uh, And uh, gradually I became aware of uh, more and more attack surface, more and more uh, vulnerabilities uh, to interception. And the reason I worried about it was that there were government investigations uh, after uh, stories that disclosed secrets. uh, And I knew that they were trying to find out who our sources were. And uh, from time to time, they were arresting those sources. Mm -hmm. And I thought it's all well and good for us to promise anonymity uh, and keep our word. But if we're leaving uh, their identities or our conversations uh, out there in plain view for uh, someone with surveillance authorities, then we're not doing a very good job. If the authorities wanted your encrypted notes, would you be required to help them unencrypt them? Well, that's a question mark, but for sure I'd be aware. Uh, The worst case scenario for me was uh, that somebody would go with a warrant to the uh, newsroom IT department and say, uh, hand us these notes from Gelman. Uh, And I wouldn't even find out about it, or I might not find out until afterward, or it wouldn't be my decision. in the 
trial of Scooter Libby, um, who was Vice President Cheney's chief of staff, uh, mm -hmm. suspected of uh, leaking and lying about it, uh, Time magazine handed over notes belonging to its reporter over the reporter's objection. Uh, Time was facing a uh, subpoena and uh, penalties for contempt if it did not comply. Uh, and those penalties included stiff fines and the company decided to comply. Uh, it had circumstances when I might not have complied myself if I were that reporter and the reporter was objecting. So I realized I wanted to leave this as my decision. Uh, and yes, that, that exposed me to risk of contempt if I refused to uh, decrypt my notes. But again, the decision would be mine and I would have control. So here's a strange question, um, but it bears asking, do you use a cell phone? I do. So I'm well aware that I've already uh, given up a lot of privacy uh, just by the nature of using a cell phone. Mm -hmm. It's become so important to basic functioning uh, in society that even though I do know a couple of people uh, in the privacy sphere who uh, either minimize use of cell phones or, or still use an old dumb flip phone, uh, I can't make that decision myself. The, the, the power of uh, the information revolution in my pocket is, is uh, so great that I, I'm just not willing to give it up, except mm -hmm. it, for certain kinds of communications that need to be more secure. Can you elaborate? What are those uh, communications? Well, those are those are source communications. Those are communications that uh, need to be, remain more private. If I'm talking to someone or I want to talk to someone uh, whom I hope to have confidential conversations with uh, that might attract the interest of, of uh, an investigator down the road, then I try to use uh, means that are more secure. Mm -hmm. uh, and I offer a bunch of options to people on the contacts page uh, on my website. Where do you draw the line between the sort of, uh, like if you're just going to the bakery, okay, or if you're going to uh, the gas station, the phone leaves a, a trail of breadcrumbs. Someone might know that you made that trip. Do you object on principle to that? Uh, or are you willing to accept that loss of privacy because it really just doesn't matter? Uh, I do object. I object in principle. Uh, I rebel against it in my mind, but if it's a trip to the bakery, I just, uh, swallow hard and, uh, and accept it. Uh, but I don't believe that our location information should belong to anyone but us. And, uh, although the phone company needs to have it, uh, in order to, to connect my phone to cell towers and may conceivably need to store it briefly uh, for billing purposes. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't think it should have the right to do anything whatsoever with that information other than what's required to perform the service that I'm paying for. That's not the state of the law right now, uh, and I wish it were. Are, are there ways that you use your phone that may be different from the rest of us? Well, you know, I, I have more restrictive settings than uh, the defaults uh, on uh, location information. For one thing, I use a VPN uh, that I've satisfied myself is not itself a, uh, you know, a, a consumer of data to sell about me. Uh, mm -hmm. I... Uh, think very carefully about what I put in email. Um, I prefer Apple iMessages over email. I prefer Signal over iMessages uh, mm -hmm. for uh, routine communications uh, because mm -hmm. they're more private. Uh, I, uh, email in particular is a, is a crazy way to uh, talk about things that um, you don't want someone else to read. Uh, and, you know, if someone sends me something that I wish they hadn't sent by email, I delete it from the server. Mm. Cause I am, I am a target of 
uh, hacking. I mean, sure, both in the sense that we all are, uh, and the sense that there are times when I am of particular interest to outsiders, and uh, I just don't want them. If they happen to manage to get into my accounts, I don't want them to uh, to see personal details of my life, even if they're. I mean, I, I know that my confidential source communications are not going to be uh, open to view that way, but I've got plenty to hide uh, in terms of personal privacy. And I think everyone that's, that's does they stop and think about it. In, in the book, you talk about the, the, the potential, and it might be a far-flung potential, um, but maybe you can expand on this a little bit. Can someone really turn on your phone without you knowing it and use it as a remote-controlled microphone to spy on you? Yes, uh, that's a well-known capability of uh, the NSA and now the FBI. And uh, there have been cases in which that kind of what's known as uh, lawful intercept in the uh, in the intelligence and law enforcement community, meaning they've got legal authority to do it. And, and they have uh, exploited uh, vulnerabilities in the system that allow them to do this uh, remote microphone. Uh, there have been cases uh, when uh, overseas in Europe, I'm trying to remember which country it was, uh, hackers, I think it was Greece, hackers found and took over uh, or, or gained persistent access to this surveillance technique. So they were actually able to turn on the remote mics uh, of telephone numbers at will uh, that had been uh, using tools that had been created for government. Do ordinary Americans have to worry about that sort of thing? Well, that's very much a targeted means of surveillance. It doesn't uh, it doesn't suit itself to bulk surveillance. So, unless you uh, become of interest uh, to government or sophisticated hackers, then you don't have to worry about that particular method. Uh, but there's lots of surveillance that happens uh, to everyone, and the more they learn about that at a granular level, uh, the more alarmed most people become. We're, we're accustomed to not thinking about it uh, and we're discouraged from thinking about it by uh, extremely vague and opaque terms of service and privacy policies that no one reads anyone. And no one reads, uh, especially because they are long and opaque and you can't figure mm -hmm. out what they mean in practice. But if you were to become aware of how much, how many people know about you, it would creep you out. Sure. Um, it seems like the ordinary American is overwhelmed with these, uh, just every little way. It's a whack-a-mole. You, you secure yourself in one area and you leave yourself wide open in another. Uh, I mean, do you think that's on purpose? Are they trying to, to overwhelm you into complacency? Uh, yeah, I think they're counting on that feeling of being overwhelmed. And to Every time someone comes up with a privacy technique that reduces surveillance, uh, clever people with very high incentives financially uh, come up with new ways around that. So these days, uh, the one self-defense mechanism that most people know, which is to delete the cookies on your browser, um, isn't very effective anymore because there are multiple generations of tracking technology uh, that don't rely on cookies. In the book, you describe the internet as a TV that watches you. Uh, what did you mean by that? And uh, what kind of internet browser do you use when, when you're off the clock? Uh, are, are you worried about yourself being watched? It's a TV that watches you because uh, your browsing habits are, are minutely tracked. Not only the pages you go to, but uh, in many cases, uh, uh, not only how long you spend on the page, but uh, where your, uh, where is the focus of your uh, cursor. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, they're, they're watching you watch them uh, and they're drawing conclusions from that and they're aggregating it uh, with enormous amounts of other data about you to form a profile of your interests and your uh, demographics. And uh, some, of, some of those things touch on highly personal things like uh, medical or sexual or uh, 
communications with uh, people that you would rather not advertise. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, I when I'm browsing for something sensitive, uh, I mean, suppose a close friend tells me they've got a dread disease uh, and I want to know more about it. I'll use the Tor browser, uh, mm-hmm. which is simple. Uh, there's very little sacrifice in using the Tor browser now. It, it uh, It's slower uh, than mm-hmm. regular browsing because it bounces your communications around the world to disguise uh, where you're going and who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's built on Firefox and it works just like a regular browser and it's not a big sacrifice to use that. Uh, except for mm-hmm. speed. So uh, for my everyday browsing, I use something called Brave, uh, which uh, is built on the Chromium uh, open source code. So it works uh, quite a lot like Chrome, but uh, all the built-in spying uh, that Google puts in Chrome is gone. And there's a lot of uh, default technology to block uh, to block tracking technology. Uh, from the websites you go to. So uh, it works well. It works smoothly. It's mm-hmm. it's a good, clean browser, and it protects you from a lot of the, uh, sp- essentially, the, the spy industry that tracks you. Uh, What's the name of that browser again? Brave. Brave. I think it's it's either brave.net or brave.com to get it. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's as easy to use as any other browser, uh, and I highly recommend it. Uh, the the people who run that project are uh, privacy advocates known to me, and I trust them. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, I I, I avoid Google search uh, for most things. Uh, I I use DuckDuckGo, mm-hmm. uh, which is almost as good uh, and uh, highly private. Do you uh, ever use your credit card to buy something over the internet? And how do you feel about that? I do use credit card to buy things on the internet. Uh, I do internet banking. Uh, I'm not an all cash person, uh, mm-hmm. but there are things that I'll buy for cash because I prefer not to keep a record of it. Okay. Uh, and depending on what what my threat model is, I mean, uh, I mean, if if I was worried about government surveillance. I mean, for example, I've bought throwaway phones and throwaway laptops for cash. Uh, right. Uh, but for, uh, for everyday transactions, um, if I think a site is a tiny bit sketchy or especially, um, nosy about my life, I'll use a, uh, disposable credit card. You know, one of these places that gives you a temporary number that doesn't track back to your real address uh, and Mm -hmm. you don't use for anything else. Uh, But most of the time I just use regular credit cards. I I mean, I'm willing to participate in the digital economy. I guess that kind of speaks to the overall question of where your threshold is. During COVID, we're all talking about our, our own risk threshold. Where do you think in general, your risk threshold sits in the, um, uh, in the digital world? Is there something that you're willing to risk? Is there a risk you're willing to take? And if, if, if worse comes to worse, you can live with that. Well, I mean, I want to be a full participant in the modern um, information and uh, financial economy. So I have to accept uh, certain compromises. Uh, there are, uh, there are privacy people who, take many more precautions than I do. Uh, And, you know, all but one of the people I know who still use flip phones uh, work for the NSA. (laughs) Mm. So so they, they know the capabilities and they just choose not to participate. But I find smartphone uh, apps uh, so powerful a tool in my life that I'm not willing to give them up. I just, I am conscious every time I use it, that there is something uh, of a public nature in what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so there might be products I wouldn't buy uh, uh, using a smartphone or or online at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
There may be internet searches that I'll use only on tour, things like that. You spoke before about the uh, the contact me page on your website, um, and it's really fascinating. You, you you say the best way to reach you if you're a, a source or a potential source is to send you a message on Signal, um, and you list your your number and you state that you don't use it as a phone. Um, do you ever use ordinary text messages, um, and why don't you trust them for for that purpose? Well, we're talking about three things here, really. Uh, sure. There's Signal. Then uh, the iPhone is so prevalent that a lot of people are using iMessage, which is uh, different from an ordinary text message How in so? that it travels encrypted on uh, Apple's network. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, whereas SMS, the short message service that uh, is the literal text message, mm-hmm. uh, travels in the clear over a multiple phone company uh, networks and is... Uh, easily readable and storable and is read and is stored by phone companies. Uh, So the content is not secure at all. Uh, iMessage is pretty secure. Uh, The the thing is, it is uh, stored in the Apple cloud and kind Mm -hmm. of hard to delete uh, and subject to uh, law enforcement subpoenas uh, and could theoretically be read by Apple employees uh, under some circumstances. Is that only Apple to Apple communication? That's only to Apple to Apple. So you can't use iMessage unless you're going iPhone to iPhone or Mac to Mac or Mac to iPhone. Uh, Then there's Signal. Signal uh, is uh, very well encrypted um, using an elegant and uh, well audited uh, encryption technology. It's open source. Uh, and Signal doesn't store messages uh, at all after they're uh, sent and received. Uh, the only thing that Signal stores is uh, when your account was created and the last time it attached, it connected to the Signal network. And mm-hmm. so um, even under subpoena, and this has been demonstrated uh, with numerous subpoenas, that that's the only thing that Signal can provide to law enforcement. It can't provide any content. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it can't provide metadata such as the fact that uh, Joe and Jane um, sent 35 messages to each other on this date uh, and have been talking periodically for the last six months. That uh, Signal doesn't store that information and can't provide it. Uh, so I like it. Now, you still have to give your phone number. Mm-hmm. You have to give a phone number to create a Signal phone. But, uh, for example, my public Signal number is not my actual phone number. Um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you can use, for example, a phone booth to create a signal account. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so if someone dials the number uh, using a regular phone, they'll reach the phone booth. But if they send a signal message, it'll come to your to your signal device. Uh, mm-hmm. And that way uh, you can keep anonymity. Um, I'm not anonymous because I'm... I'm putting my name on my website to that number, uh, mm-hmm. but it saves me from uh, being s- spammed. Uh, if need be, I could abandon that number and do a new one without changing my real phone number. So you write on your site, um, this is really interesting, uh, quote, before you reach out, give some thought to what you want to keep private, who might try to listen in, and how much you care. Uh, and then you write... If you have a genuine reason to fear surveillance by a well-resourced adversary, you may reach me on SecureDrop, a system designed for maximum privacy. Um, Edward Snowden uh, clearly was uh, attracted to your work uh, because you you know how to protect information. Um, In your work, have you started to attract others who actually contact you like this? And is the information typically of much value? Well, that's interesting. Advertising a secure drop instance is a mixed blessing. Uh, first of all, you have to give enormous amount of credit to the Freedom of the Press Foundation, uh, which took over mm-hmm. the secure drop project and puts a lot of resources into it and uh, has created uh, the most secure and uh, 
system that that is not out of reach of ordinary mortals. Uh, you, you don't mm -hmm. want to require someone uh, to take a six month course on uh, computer security to be able to uh, make contact with you. And there are a lot of pitfalls uh, mm. that uh, someone can make if they try to uh, come up with their own operational security uh, and that will cause the whole thing to fail. SecureDrop is built so that it is uh, idiot proof for uh, both the uh, sender and receiver of information. Um, it is almost not possible to make a mistake that would compromise your security. Uh, it requires someone to download the Tails browser uh, and uh, it takes care of anonymity and encryption. Uh, you could also use the Tor browser a little bit less securely. Uh, mm -hmm. But in any case, um, it does solve the initial problem of how do you initiate first contact with someone without leaving a trail that can be traced back to you, mm -hmm. uh, which is a hard problem and SecureDrop solves that. The trouble is that uh, people who are attracted to secret spooky things um, are often uh, paranoid or misguided or deluded or mm -hmm. uh, obsessive about something. Uh, and so the honest truth is a large fraction, a very large fraction of the communications I receive through SecureDrop are uh, not of interest to me. And uh, many of them are, are, uh, are, are just deluded people um, or obsessed people who think I'm going to be deeply interested in their struggles with their phone company or uh, whatever the case may be. Uh, and I burn a decent amount of time going through the process of accessing and decrypting these communications and deciding what to do with them. Uh, but from time to time, uh, something very interesting comes along. I don't want to uh, get in the way of your ongoing projects, but suffice it to say, do you think that uh, something of, of, of ongoing use has come through that uh, uh, platform? Uh, I don't have anything at the moment. Um, that's an ongoing project that's using SecureDrop, uh, but I have had. I see you use Twitter. Um, why do you feel comfortable on that platform? And uh, are you on any of the other social media platforms? I'm least uncomfortable uh, with Twitter. <laughs> um, I, I maintain a LinkedIn page just passively. Um, I don't post anything and uh, I don't do a lot to maintain my network on there, but um, I use it almost as a, a directory. Um, if you want to know some things about me and my employment history, um, here it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a Facebook account that I keep on meaning to uh, delete. Uh, <laughs> and the um, I it's entirely passive. I do nothing but lurk once a month or so to see what my kids are doing. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, or... Uh, a few relatives or close friends. I um, I have now. It could be a thousand um, unanswered friend requests. Uh, there are many hundreds. Um, I just I just don't interact with it at all. I I can't stand Facebook, and I I think it's a of cool. a, a force that does a lot more harm than good, and uh, does everything it can to track me. And I'm just not interested in uh, engaging my social life. Uh, or communications life on there. Uh, Twitter is just so useful a tool that I accept the uh, amount of metadata I'm giving away uh, by using it. Um, I find it very useful for direct communications with people I want to reach. Mm -hmm. uh, and I find it even more useful for uh, tracking news and events that I care about. Um, I'm very likely to find out uh, something of considerable interest to me first on Twitter before I find out any other way. And there are some things I might never have learned um, because I curate who I follow and I make lists. I have, I have Twitter lists, which I use primarily by interest. Yeah, Twitter is uh, usually how I hear about news first. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. I, I remember when there was... Uh, 
there was uh, an earthquake that did uh, palpably reach New York City some years back. It originated down closer to Washington, D.C. It was a large one. Mm -hmm. And uh, I learned about it on Twitter before the tremors even reached New York. Mm. Uh, so that was pretty good speed. Is it possible to, to lurk on Facebook and not, uh, not post uh, without giving up your privacy? Uh, you're, giving up, you're giving up quite a bit of privacy just being on Facebook and having an account. And uh, certainly if you click on links, uh, and if you uh, make and accept friend requests, uh, you're you're creating a, uh, a sort of you know <laughs> psychometric profile that Facebook exploits. Uh, certainly, if you send messages or receive messages, and it's it's hard to be on Facebook without those things happening. Uh, I think inspired by this conversation, I'm going to delete my account. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I, I, I don't know when I last locked on, lo logged on. Yes, and I do thank you for this uh, public service. Anytime. You're listening to Cookies, a podcast about technology, security, and privacy. We're speaking with Barton Gelman, a journalist whose groundbreaking work with the Washington Post in 2013 revealed widespread surveillance by the National Security Agency and brought the name Edward Snowden into the national consciousness. On our next episode, we'll talk with Ruby Lee, the Forrest G. Hamrick Professor in Engineering and a Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering here at Princeton. As a chief computer architect at Hewlett-Packard in the 1980s, she was a leader in changing the way computers are built, and she revolutionized the way computers use multimedia. We'll talk about how to make the hardware and computers more secure without sacrificing performance. It's the 100th anniversary of Princeton School of Engineering and Applied Science. To celebrate, we're providing 100 facts about our past, our present, and our future including some quiz questions to test your knowledge about the people, places, and discoveries who have made us who we are. Join the conversation by following us on Instagram at ePrinceton. That's the letter E, Princeton. But for now, back to our conversation with Bart Gelman. In the book, I, I read an interesting passage about how Snowden covered his keyboard with a blanket to type in his password. Um, what did you learn from Edward Snowden about keeping your communication secure? And do you recommend going to that extreme? Well, Edward Snowden had the highest threat model uh, that it's possible to imagine. Uh, his, uh, you ask who your adversary is. Well, his adversary was the world's most capable surveillance agency, uh, it was already watching him in the sense that it watches all its employees. Uh, he was doing something inside the NSA that he didn't want anyone to find out about until he was ready. Mm -hmm. uh, the stakes were his freedom. Uh, he even believed that um, he could be killed. Uh, mm -hmm. Something I did not personally believe, but uh, it entered his thinking. So he had very high stakes a uh, very capable adversary. And so he did everything possible to avoid surveillance. Uh, and one of the threats, if you are uh, under surveillance, is uh, that someone's got a pinhole camera stuck in your wall. Now, if the FBI is surveilling you, uh, that is quite possible. That's one of their standard techniques mm -hmm. is to, uh, is to uh, record uh, clandestine video of a surveillance target, uh, in which case they could watch you type your password on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, he thought it's probably not necessary. It's a little bit of a pain in the ass, but it's not that big a deal to cover your, your keyboard with a blanket. It doesn't cost you anything except a few seconds time and maybe feeling silly. <laughs> uh, and it might help in some circumstances. So why not? That was the way he thought about it. I, I don't cover my keyboard with a blanket. I tend to think that if uh, if there's a pinhole camera in my wall, uh, my operational security is sufficiently blown that I uh, no longer have to uh, worry about precautions. True. 
in the book, it uh, you seem to be learning things by necessity as the investigation goes on to conduct the story. Things like using laptops that aren't connected to the internet or taking the phone out of your or taking the battery out of your phone. Was there anything that, that he showed you that uh, seemed like it has ongoing use in, in your uh, professional life? Yeah, I mean, there are levels and levels of using encryption, for example. Uh, when it, we used primarily um, two methods, um, SecureDrop, by the way, didn't exist at this time. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we used email, uh, we used email using anonymous accounts, that is, you know, accounts using sort of fake and sort of randomized names uh, and accessed only over the Tor anonymity network mm -hmm. um, so that uh, someone watching, uh, and, and of course it was encrypted using PGP. So uh, someone watching would see an encrypted blob of communications going from, you know, Donald Duck to Mickey Mouse and, w and would not be able to tell where in the world uh, those accounts were being accessed. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one thing. Uh, and the other was, uh, was live chat using Jabber. Uh, again, with uh, anonymity switched on and uh, encryption uh, and fake names. Uh, so the thing is, um, each of those methods uses uh, an exchange of encryption keys, uh, it, which you have to uh, verify uh, that, yes, I recognize this key as being valid. Well, how do you exchange keys uh, to do that? Uh, and Snowden showed me how you use a second channel. So, for example, you could use an encrypted email to verify a Jabber key or vice versa. So you're using two different uh, channels of communication to, uh, to authenticate yourselves. Uh, and for example, sometimes uh, he would say, let's change accounts. And so uh, he would write me as Mickey Mouse uh, and say, I'm going to uh, create a new account called Pluto. Here's the encryption key. That would be encrypted to me at Donald Duck. And I would reply back, uh, saying I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be Daffy, uh, and send him the encryption key to Daffy. And so now you've, uh, you've got two completely unrelated accounts and let's just assume that we were not using characters from the same cartoon universe. Uh, so it was Mickey and Donald talking. Now it's Pluto and Daffy talking, and there's no external reason based on edit metadata. Uh, for any observer to uh, link the two. So uh, we would periodically change keys that way. Okay, well, let's talk about the cloud. Um, you write that uh, putting your information in the cloud is akin to giving up control. Uh, how so? So as uh, there's, a, there's a British a security expert whose name is Graham Cluley, and he uh, coined the very simple but revealing aphorism that the cloud is just another name for somebody else's computer. <laughs> so uh, you are deciding to store material that may be confidential to you and maybe even a very in a very consequential way. You're saying, instead of storing it here on my computer, I'm just going to store it on someone else's computer, a stranger's computer. Uh, and uh, there will be other people who can read my file. Uh, and in fact, I can't read my own file without going to these other people and asking uh, for them to send it back to me. Uh, and that just seems like a a bad deal to me uh, when you're dealing with confidential material. Now, it's the business model of these cloud companies to persuade large companies who are going to be paying customers uh, that the information is secure enough uh, that a company can be comfortable with it. Uh, but it is not secure, again, against law enforcement subpoenas, uh, and it's not uh, potentially as secure against uh, hackers as your own storage might be if you're taking good precautions. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a very attractive hacking target because it's got such an enormous volume of valuable information on it. Uh, mm -hmm. So... I, I use 
cloud services for some things, for some routine things. I use it especially for storing uh, encrypted volumes. Uh, so uh, I will back up encrypted files to the cloud because the cloud has big advantages in that uh, if you have a fire at your house, you're not going to burn your only backup copy right. uh, in, in the fire. It's good to have uh, remote backups when possible, but I don't want to have my unencrypted files uh, backed up that way. Uh, not, not most of the time. So should those of us who keep our photos or music in the cloud, but don't deal in national security matters, um, reconsider our, our casual use of the cloud? I don't know. Photos can be pretty revealing. Um, if, if, if I had my druthers, people would use something called a near a zero knowledge, uh, cloud system. Uh, that's a, that's a system that has been engineered so that the hosting company, and you're going to have to pay for this. It's not going to be a free service. The hosting company uh, doesn't have access to your files, can't look at your photos, no matter what, because before they leave your computer, they're encrypted with a key that only you know. Now, that means two things. It means that you can't forget your password because uh, the company can't rescue you if you do. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're probably going to have to pay, let's say, 100 bucks a year. Uh, and... Uh, for that price, you get remote redundant storage that only you can access. Uh, and you don't have all your personal information and your tax returns and your shopping habits and so forth. And all your, uh, all your kids' uh, school files and medical files uh, mm -hmm. stored where other people can read them. Uh, so um, I would recommend uh, for people who are uh, interested in that uh, two products that I've used myself that are again they're built with this zero knowledge principle um, one is called spider oak and one's called tresorit what's that second one tresorit it's t r e s o r i t um do you get the sense that the security of ordinary americans information is any more or less secure with the new administration or after the january 6th capital invasion uh I don't think anything's changed uh, with the change in government uh, that we know of uh, or mm -hmm. after the Capitol insurrection. Uh, I think what has changed pretty dramatically in recent years uh, is, is that uh, the security and privacy of uh, the Internet uh, were both considerably enhanced by the Snowden disclosures and by the reactions they provoked uh, in the technology companies. Uh, before people understood the nature of the privacy threat, uh, there was no market demand for privacy. There was no, no market demand for security or not, not nearly as much uh, as soon as the government's uh, spying was disclosed, people started talking more about commercial spying as well. And, then in order to uh, in order to protect their market shares, companies like Google and Microsoft and Facebook um, had to step up their security measures considerably. And mm -hmm. so uh, and so and so did laggards like Yahoo, which had refused to encrypt connections between Yahoo servers and uh, user computers uh, for years. It had been asked to do so by privacy advocates and it hadn't bothered to do so. So now the reason why um, almost every site on the internet now uh, that you're likely to encounter um, has a little lock icon in the uh, top of the browser in the, in the address bar, uh, mm -hmm. meaning that it's running over HTTPS, uh, the S standing for secure. Uh, reason that all these websites are encrypted by default now is Edward Snowden. Uh, mm. It changed dramatically uh, in just uh, a couple of years, beginning in mid-2013 when his disclosures began. And that was remarkable. And I know that you've covered this extensively in other podcasts and interviews about the legacy of the Snowden uh, revelations. Um, and I don't want to uh, waste a lot of your time repeating what you've already said many times, but it is very remarkable, the legacy of the, uh, this outstanding reporting that you 
that you did and uh, the risks that he took uh, to, to get the word out. What kind of general advice do you have, given everything that's changed since your stories came out What um, and uh, everything that you just told me in the last couple minutes about the changes that, that each one of these platforms has made in response to your reporting? Um, given the, the state of the art right now, what kind of general advice do you have for anybody who's looking to up their privacy game? Uh, well, I would at least glance through the terms of service and the privacy policies uh, because they do differ in material ways uh, from place to place. Uh, and if the privacy is good, there will be clear, plain English uh, explanations of that near the top. And if it's not good, just consider, do you really need to use this service? Uh, is it really important for you to play this game? Uh, if you do want to do it, uh, consider using um, throwaway email addresses. Uh, most websites don't really need to know from your point of view, for your interest, what your email address is. Uh, so you can go to something like yopmail, Y-O-P-mail.com, and create a, a throwaway address to get uh, verified by the website, and then you never need to check it again. Uh, don't give your cell phone number if you can help it. And if you can't help it, then uh, get one of the free or cheap uh, apps that let you uh, create a throwaway number on your smartphone. Uh, and give that out routinely because it's like a social security number almost. It's the easiest way that you're tracked around the internet, your email address and your and your telephone number. Mm -hmm. Use DuckDuckGo for your searches. Use Signal for your texts. Use Brave for your browser. Uh, you, uh, look at the privacy permissions uh, on your smartphone uh, and turn off access to personal information for any app that doesn't need it. That takes maybe 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, use a password manager. Um, I prefer 1Password uh, to save your passwords and that enables you to choose uh, unique and hard to guess passwords for every account. Um, it simplifies it. It actually speeds up your uh, logon to websites uh, compared to not using a, uh, a password manager and uh, and it's highly secure. Mm -hmm. um, those would be, well, actually my, my, uh, my number one before all of that mm -hmm. is to uh, install updates for your computer uh, operating system and software as soon as they arrive. Uh, don't be one of those people who has like 17 uninstalled ups, updates uh, <laughs> waiting because you don't feel like bothering. Uh, Why is that important? Uh, almost every single update includes security updates. It's, it's when hackers have figured out a way to break into a system by Adobe or Microsoft or Apple or Google. Uh, uh, and the manufacturer has become aware of this and it is patched the system it has patched the hole. Uh, it has stopped the vulnerability, uh, but you have to upgrade to get that patch. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, in general, things will work better, uh, but in particular, um, there are security implications to just about every upgrade there is. Good advice. So finally, uh, as someone who isn't a tenured professor, but knows our community quite well, what is the role of folks at the Center for Information Technology Policy in improving security and, and privacy? It's a fantastic center. It's uh, it's something that uh, I don't know that it's unique, but it's unusual um, at universities to have uh, to have uh, world class uh, technical people uh, collaborating with and thinking about. Uh, public policy people uh, and public policy questions. So it's it's the uh, it's the intersection of policy, law, and technology, uh, and very thoughtful about uh, the big issues. You know, which also include things like artificial intelligence uh, that come at those intersections. Uh, and uh, there have been there's there's been great work done there. Uh, 
to show uh, unintended uh, consequences of policies, gaps in the law, uh, technical flaws that uh, belie uh, consumer claims made by various companies, uh, ways that uh, your you know your smart devices at home are are uh, are insecure or are tracking you uh, that the companies uh, haven't advertised. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a great center. It's a it's a real national resource. Terrific. Uh, anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? No, I think you've covered it well. Thank you. Well, when I was uh, a kid uh, looking at uh, journalism school and then starting out, uh, when I when I grew up, I wanted to do exactly what you've ended up doing. So I uh, have a lot of admiration for your uh, for the work you've done, and it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Well, it's an honor to be here. It's, you're you're thinking all the time about exactly the issues that interest me. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. Take care now. You too. Well, we've been speaking with journalist Barton Gelman, a 1982 Princeton graduate. His book is Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State, and we'll list a link to it in our show notes. I want to thank Bart, as well as our recording engineer, Dan Kearns. Thanks as well to Emily Lawrence, Molly Sherlock, Neil Adelinter, and Stephen Schultz. Cookies is a production of the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and other platforms. Show notes and an audio recording of this podcast are available at our website, engineering.princeton.edu. If you get a chance, please leave a review. It helps. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Princeton University. I'm Aaron Nathans, Digital Media Editor at Princeton Engineering. Watch your feed for another episode of Cookies soon. Peace.